Hey, welcome to the Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. How are we this morning? Oh, great. Isn't it nice to be hiding away from the heat? Yeah, it's been pretty warm. Very unusual. Let me just set a timer because typical preacher, I lose track of time and I need a timer to make sure you don't fall asleep. So we're uh, continuing on in our Hebrew series for those of you who are joining us for the first time this morning. And today we're looking at another very difficult passage of scripture. This is the second warning. Oh, the help this was on. The second major warning in Hebrews. We've had that one in, in chapter 6 where he warns about those who've been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift. And then here he rips out another banger. Oh, my clicker is not working. Well, that's annoying. But anyway, he rips out another banger of a warning and he says that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Isn't that very terrifying? Thanks, Thomas. It's scary. It's a scary warning. And perhaps you've noticed this theme throughout Hebrews, that what Hebrews does is he gives you a warning, comfort, maybe another warning. And here he continues sort of that pattern. We get comfort, a terrifying warning, and then some more comfort. And so this terrifying warning, which, is, which you can read in verses 26 through to 30, it's scary. It's meant to make you terrified. But then when that warning is finished, you draw comfort from it. Oh, thank you, Grozy. should be working. There we go. You draw comfort from that. And, and the comfort that we're meant to draw from is that in, in the past, the Old Testament saints, they had to wrestle with tremendous, tremendous difficulty. Their, their journey of faith was not easy. In some ways, you could call it a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage of faith. And we are going to look at two pilgrims today. Oh, why is that not working? There should be a couple more slides after that about Abraham. When I look at two key Old Testament figures, it's not there? Oh, I say where I set that on. And we're going to look at Abraham and we're going to look at Moses. In the classic book, The Lord of the Rings, before he goes out on his journey, Frodo um, is standing at the edge of the Shire. As he's standing there, Samwise is there at the boundary and he says, I've never, this is the furthest I've travelled beyond the Shire. And then Frodo quotes from his uncle Bilbo. And Bilbo said to Frodo once upon a time, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out the door. You step onto the road and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you may might be swept off. So again, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out the door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. 
I love that quote. It's a great quote for the journeying of life. And for those Hebrew, the author Hebrews is writing to, they feel like they're on this journey. They've had this huge excitement about this newfound faith in coming to Jesus. And, and, and in that excitement, there's now this sort of apathy. Apathy about the difficulty, about, about the challenges of being a follower of Jesus. And as those doubts begin to swell in their mind, you're tempted to walk off that path. And that's been the whole book, point of the book of Hebrews, is so the church doesn't wander away from their faith. And here we come to, I guess, really the crunch end of the book. I just love what he says here. Last week, Murray unpacked all. I'm really not having much luck with technology today, am I? Maybe I should have prayed over this uh, clicker. Can you go back to the beginning, um, to verse 19? There we go. And Murray unpacked for us the tabernacle and Jesus' sacrifice. After all this theology, he comes to this point, a therefore. So the point of all that discussion about tabernacle, about sacrifices, about the uselessness of the blood of animals, comes down to this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings us, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And if you can flick to the next slide, Matt. There you go. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. It's a whole theology about that. It's like, let us actually draw near. Let us cling on to God with this sincere heart. In fact, he's saying, hey, you guys, you should be continue to meet together. This is really, really good news. You may have noticed some imagery in there about sprinkling and our hearts being cleansed from a guilty conscience. That's Levitical language. That's what the priests would do. Sprinkling the altar, sprinkling people with water, being cleansed. Saying this is really, really good news. You should be excited by this. Are you excited by this? Yes, we have new life in Jesus. This guilt is taken away. And then that passage I read earlier, that big warning, that's why it gives us this warning. Because there is a day approaching. That day is the day of the Lord. If you're the righteous, that's a day of celebration. When God takes all the evil, all the injustice of this world wipes it away. But if you're wicked, that's scary. Really, really scary. So for some, the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus' return, as we call it, it's a day of celebration for the righteous, but for the wicked, it's a terrifying day. And hence why he gives you this warning. If you reject Jesus, if you reject what he has done for you, 
there's only this fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire. This terrifying language he's drawing upon from the prophets of the Old Testament. And you should feel a bit of fear. A bit of fear in that. And he gives us a lesser than to greater than argument. If, if anyone rejected the law of Moses... Oh, that's the next slide. Oh, yeah. If anyone rejected the law of Moses, they died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think uh, someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot? It's terrifying. It's harsh language. It's not just talking about any old sin, if you've committed this lying or cheating or anything like that. It's, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about actually rejecting Jesus as Lord and Saviour. So there you've got, in one sense, you've got this great hope, this great news, this great joy, and you've got another warning there to freak you out. But, but he does leave us there in that warning. And if we jump forward to the next slide, please, you'll see there, he goes back into the history. Remember, you guys, remember those early days? Do you remember that? When, when you first became Christians, you endured this great conflict. You're full of suffering. In fact, you will publicly exposed. The people were taking away your possessions. You are being persecuted. You suffer along those in prison and joyfully accept the confiscation of your property because you knew that yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Hey, remember that. Remember those days? You're willing to endure suffering, persecution, heartache. Look back upon that. And that's really important for what the argument that he develops in chapter 11 is that you must have faith. He talks about perseverance. And then he quotes here from a very famous passage in the book of Habakkuk. And he quotes, he says, But my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. In the book of Hebrews, faith isn't just merely a belief, belief in perhaps the key tenets of Christianity. Faith is action. In fact, he defines it for us there in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and an assurance about what we do not see. That is faith, friends. That is faith. Believing in God's promises, even when you don't see them. So right now, put your, put your, put your yeah, shoes into that early church. People being persecuted rejected, who are thinking about walking away from their faith. They're not seeing God's promises come through. This is what he's doing. He says, hey, remember, the righteous live by faith. That's all Habakkuk told us. In fact, if you shrink back, God has no time for those who shrink back. Faith is about remembering what God has done, even when you cannot see it. As he continues on, this is what the ancients were commended for. And I've got 
about 10 minutes left of preaching time, so we don't have time to unpack this great chapter in Hebrews. So another plug for banter. That's what banter is for. But I actually want to look at um, two famous uh, characters, Abraham and Moses. If it was meant to be there on the screen, I'm not sure what's happened there to my slides. But it says here in Hebrews 11 verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would later receive as an inheritance. And he went out without understanding where he was going. By faith he lived as a foreigner in the promised land as though he... It were a foreign country, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham, when he set out, author Hebrews tells us, he wasn't looking just for a plot of land. He was looking for something greater, this heavenly city. And I just love this image here of it. Looking forward to the city with firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So looking forward. Now, in the Bible, this is a question for the audience. What city might he be referring to? Oh, I heard something. Jerusalem. We, we, we find a depiction of that in what book? What book do we see Jerusalem coming out of the clouds? Revelation. That's what he's looking forward to. This, this heavenly city. Abraham's journey, this pilgrimage that he went on. He recognised, yeah, there's this promised land of Canaan, which my descendants will inherit. The wolf the Hebrews recognise there's something deeper. That's just like a little foretaste of what is to come. Abraham is looking for this city that's going to come down. And Revelation just gives us that beautiful image. This city that comes out of heaven into earth. That's what he was looking for. And he never saw that in his lifetime. But he still believed it. And it goes on to describe Sarah and just her journey. Uh, and it goes on here. This is verse four, four, 14. It says, For those who speak in such a way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And it's not just any homeland. They're seeking a better homeland, a heavenly one. That's what they're looking for, a heavenly one. Now, friends, do you see yourselves as pilgrims? Do you see yourself on a journey Towards the heavenly city. In Hebrews 10, when the author is telling them to remember those days, people took your possessions away. People threw you into prison. But you didn't care. You accepted it joyfully. That's what pilgrims do. That's what he's saying here is that Abraham recognized there's a better city. There's a better country to come. So don't focus on the here and now. There's pilgrims are constantly looking for a destination. They know where they're headed. Now, in our Protestant Christianity, we don't really go on pilgrimage. I think it's a great mindset to adapt. We're heading for a destination. We're heading for 
the heavenly city. And if you know that there is a heavenly city destined for us, it's going to come out of heaven onto earth and restore everything we see around us. Start to think, huh, the things that I lust for, the possessions that I crave onto, I don't really need them anymore. I should be like those Christians, the author of Hebrews was writing to in those early days. Hey, you accepted the confiscation of your property. You're like, oh, well, I know I've got better things to come. And that's what the pilgrim mindset is all about. So that's the example of Abraham. And then we get down to Moses. And I just love the description here of Moses. This is from verse 24. It says, By faith, when he grew up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. He regarded abuse suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for his eyes were fixed on the reward. I'll read that again. This is verse 26. He regarded abuse suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for his eyes were fixed on the reward. Now, in the Old Testament, Egypt represents false prosperity. Time and time again, we see the children of God heading to Egypt. Abraham, when he's first called out of the land, there's a famine in Canaan, so you know what he does? Goes down to Egypt. Abraham, in fact, Hagar, when, um, if you know Hagar, um, Sarah's, Uh, maidservant, the one that Abraham had Ishmael through, she is also Egyptian, false prosperity. So I'm like, oh, well, Sarah can't get pregnant. Maybe Hagar, she's Egyptian. And time and time again, the Israelites look to Egypt. It's this false prosperity. The prophet Ezekiel describes Egypt as like a broken reed. You lean on, it's just going to snap upon you. I just love that here. Moses could see beyond that. He wasn't looking to the wealth of Egypt. He was willing to endure Suffering of Christ for something greater. And friends, we have the greatest reward of all. I think I've shared it a few times. That with me, when I kind of wandered away from faith and came back, the verse that really, really resonated with me, it brought me to tears, was when I read on the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I realized, my treasure is on earth. It's not in heaven. This is what faith is all about. Maybe in the day-to-day we aren't seeing God's promises come true. But look through this list. All these heroes, Abraham, Sarah, Noah, Joshua, they, they didn't see God's promises come through within their lifetime. But they still had faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Friends, do we live that way? Are we people who live by faith or do we shrink back? I was reading in a commentary this week on Hebrews by an author called George Gunthry and he asked these challenging questions which really struck a chord with me. He said, how would you and I live today 
if we believed absolutely that God existed and loved us completely and had a destination for us that made all the world pale by just one square foot of its turf? How would we live if we believed that God cared about our every action and every concern and wished to reward us magnanimously for our faith? How would you and I live in the face of opposition if we believed in God, really believed as if our whole lives depended on Him and His? Do you say, but I do, I do believe absolutely. I believe with all I am and all I have. Then how would you live differently if you did not believe? Would there be much difference? This is a critical question. I am all, uh, if, I all, if all I am and all I have and do differs little from my unbelieving neighbour, then I have embraced this world. And if I have embraced his world and his values and fool myself by saying I'm living for another world and kingdom values. It's a bit of a long quote. What he's saying is that if you actually believe what the author of Hebrews is saying and what the Bible teaches, is there any difference? In the life that you live. He kind of argues there in that what Paul does has this pretend, um, so he's arguing with himself there. And we say, when you say, but I do, I do believe absolutely, I believe with all I am and all I have. Many of us would profess that. We say, we believe in Jesus, we would put our hands up, but does that transform our lives any different from the neighbors around us? Friends, Hebrews is calling us to do something radical, something different, to be people of faith. And faith, my friends, is difficult. And if chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Hebrews doesn't teach it, and I don't know what will. It's Abraham's life, Jacob's life, Isaac's life, Moses' life. All those heroes' lives are challenging, difficult. There are moments where their faith was greatly tested but those who do have faith there is a great reward the heavenly city coming down to this earth and if that all feels a little bit pie in the sky like oh, i don't really get this whole heavenly jerusalem thing it just seems a little bit disconnected i love what timothy keller says about what god's going to do to this world when the new heavens and the new earth come along He says here, the biblical view of things is is resurrection. Not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. Saying God's going to turn this world around. So if there's something you feel is missing in your life, God's going to restore that when He brings in the new heavens and the new earth. In a roundabout way, this is what Hebrews is talking about. If you have faith, you may not see it in the day to day, you may not see it now, but God will come through on His promises. The reason I know that is because one of the biggest promises he gave us, sending his son, whose death 
and resurrection we knew happened. So if God has done that, then he will come through on his promises in bringing the heavenly city, the heavenly country for us. Friends, faith is tough. There will be a big price to pay, but the rewards are worth it. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just give you thanks for your word and the immense challenge that it is at times. And in Hebrews, the scene there, the comfort and and the warning for those who reject. But Lord, we see the reward for those that believe in you, that believe in the promises that you've given. Father, I pray that we can be people who live by faith and not by sight. Confidence in the promises that you've given and that we be people, Lord, who do not shrink back, but boldly walk on the path that you've called us. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.